There's very, very few decisions that are win, 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 win. There's most decisions have an impact somewhere or has some level of risk. And if we're going to be an organization and an institution that's innovative, that is embracing continuous improvement, we have to be able to move forward on things with a cost-benefit analysis. And there's always a cost. Hello everyone and welcome to Campus Confidential. This is Corey Insko stepping out from behind the producer curtain for just a minute to tell you about a very special live episode we have for you this week. Don't worry, you'll be hearing from Kelsey and Lauren very soon. But today's episode was recorded in front of a live audience during a panel at the NACUS Annual Conference in Toronto just a few weeks ago. In it, you'll hear from three incredible auxiliary services leaders who I'll let Lauren introduce in just a moment. You'll hear about their leadership journeys, how they see addressing conflict as a form of caring, and why you can often learn as much or even more from bad leaders as you do from good ones. It's a really great conversation. Okay, that's enough for me. I'll duck back behind the curtain so we can dive into this conversation recorded live at NACUS. Kelsey, how are you? I am excited. How are you? Great. It's good to be here in Toronto. Yeah. Where are we? What are we doing? We are at the National Association of College Auxiliary Services Conference, annual conference with uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of uh, really favorite colleagues. Do we have that many people in the room with us? Yeah. They're listening. People don't know how many are in the room. (laughs) Okay. That's fine. It's like a thousand people in this room. It's great. Everybody is here. Yeah. I love it. And they're going to make lots of noises and you're going to hear them. But yes, you know, to set the context for our listeners of the podcast, we are in the room with, in reality, probably 75 to 100 people um, in conversation with some great auxiliary services leaders. And um, why don't you tell us who is on our panel? Yeah, I'm really excited. First of all, that all of you are here today. Um, This is fun because we have people that want to hear the stories of people that were asking to be part of this podcast. So thank you for all of to all of you for being here. And I'm really, really honored and excited that we have three fantastic uh, podcast guests with us today. And I'm going to introduce them. The listeners can't see this, but I'm going to go uh, left to right for the people in the room here. The first of whom is uh, Dreda Harris, who is the Associate Vice President for Business Services at the University of Virginia just since just this last spring, right? A- April? Is that right? April 23. That is correct. All right. So congratulations. New role, University of Virginia. Thank you. A long time in the profession, however, a short time at Virginia, previously at Ferris State in Michigan as the Associate Vice President for Auxiliary Services. Prior to that, Wright State University as the Executive Director of Auxiliary Services, Oakland Community College as the Director of Auxiliary Services and Purchasing for quite a while, 16 years, and University of Michigan Flint as a purchasing agent as the start of that that auxiliary uh, journey. Uh, Dreda holds an MBA from the University of Michigan. Her bachelor's degree is from Davenport, uh, certified CASP for 10 years now, and um, serves on the board of directors and has lots of volunteer, 15 years of volunteer service to uh, NACUS. So thank you for that service and thank you for being here. The next person is uh, Dr. Mike Porritt, who works for Scion Advisory Services as the International VP 
uh, Vice President for International Advisory Services. He's worked in seven Canadian provinces and around the world. I think last we talked, you were coming back from India or you were in India for a brief period doing some work there. Um, his work for Scion Advisory Services includes uh, housing operational reviews, public-private advising, master plans, demand analyses, occupancy strategies, all the things that have to do with creating fantastic housing experiences. He uh, has been with Scion for eight years, but has, like Kelsey and me, spent a long time in higher education before moving to an, an adjacent, higher adjacent role, uh, including 25 years at Winona State University in Minnesota, uh, also McMaster University here in Canada, Trent, Huron and McGill University as well here in, here in Canada. Um, he speaks and presents all over the, the, the country and, and uh, we're really excited to have you here. Thanks very much. Last but not least, Jared Seha, who is the CEO of the Cal Poly Pomona Foundation since March of 2020. Interesting time to start a new job. No, I think <laughs> Crazy March, time, yeah. yeah. No big deal. Yeah. We can talk about that. Ooh, we can. Yeah. Um, Jared's responsibilities at Cal Poly Pomona include uh, the bookstore, commercial real estate, dining services, housing operations for faculty and staff, is, by the way, as well. That's got to be interesting. Oh. A hotel and conferencing, the one card program, and other kinds of auxiliary services that all of you, of course, will be familiar with. Previous service included Long Beach State, Chafee College, and Santa Ana College, and prior to that, worked in corporate retail banking and theme park operations. So lots of different uh, kinds of experiences here on the on the uh, podcast today. Uh, Jared's also a certified CASP and treasurer of the NACAS board and uh, father of two teenagers. Theme park operations probably helped with that. Uh, Very much yeah. so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we're glad you're all here. Thank you, and thank you to the room for being with us today. Jared is is a theme park not to be named. It's like I'm happy to name it. I don't know how many people would know it. Oh, Raging Waters in San Dimas for oh, the ten yeah, fifty seven meet. All right, a few. Who doesn't love a water park? Yeah, I thought it was maybe Disney, and you were just trying not to say it. no. No, That's great. I wasn't Raging cool waters. enough to work at Disney. <laughs> <laughs> I think you are. Okay, so. Tell us a little bit. So on the podcast, we typically like to say, how do you share what you do with a ride share driver and go down that road? But we're going to give just a little brief how you got to where you are right now. Jared, we're going to we'll go the opposite way. We'll start with you, Jared, and tell us how you got from theme park to where you are today. Sure. Well, theme park operations, Raging Waters, which I loved, by the way, I actually <laughs> woke up every morning looking forward to going to work. I'm like, they're paying me to do this. Um, I started working pretty young. Uh, we didn't have any money and I needed to help uh, pay some of the bills around the house and uh, ended up started as a fry cook and a burger prep and ended up working there for five years and was able to run the, the food and beverage department as a 20 year old. So um, from there, took a Pivot. Is that I where you guess. learned about supply chain? A <laughs> where the bit, hot dogs yeah. come from? Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, took a pivot to uh, banking and uh, enjoyed that as well. Um, got to brush, brush up on my Spanish a little bit, given the community we're serving. Uh, my Spanish is not great, but uh, did help me. I learned a lot of words my grandmother did not teach me. Uh, <laughs> went to retail uh, after that. And um, there's, if any of you are familiar with the May Company, they had Filene's, Kaufman's, uh, Famous Bar, Myron Frank, Robinson's May, all kinds of different brands. Uh, Macy's bought us out. And so I was at the, uh, the 
the buying office at that point and had to make a decision of what do I do? Uh, Macy's was prepared to interview us and see if we wanted to go elsewhere in the country. There wasn't going to be any further opportunity in Southern California. And, and that's my home. My All my family's there. Uh, you know, that's that's my community. I know some of you have had tremendous success moving around the country or moving between countries. Um, that has not been my path. Uh, but my wife, who was in uh, higher ed at the time, still is actually, um, faculty member now, uh, previously a staff member, said, hey, you should check out auxiliary services. And I looked at her like I'm sure most of you did at some what point and that? said, what are you talking about? I had no idea, not a clue, never heard of it, um, but sat down with a, a gentleman, uh, Jay Devers, uh, who's since passed, but he was the auxiliary director at the community college where my where my wife works. And uh, he filled me in and, and talked about what they do. And I saw fit my financial background and, and education, my business degree with the retail, with the food services. And, and I saw how auxiliary services could be a path. And my wife raved about just the impact she felt like she was having on students. And as much as I love business and I, and I do very, very much, I started to see the connection on how I could use what, what I've learned and my experience to for the betterment of, of students and betterment of, you know, society, if you want to go that broad. And so uh, I applied I, to Santa Ana College. I had an auxiliary director there that was willing to look outside of the higher ed field. Um, she took some heat from that from some members of what became my team who thought that there's no way you could be a bookstore manager unless you came through the bookstore. And uh, but team that really we bonded as I had my time there and uh, was able to, to land. You heard at Chafee College, I the auxiliary director there broadened my horizons. Um, but at that point, and I love Chafee, I was there for seven years, I, uh, I saw this job at uh, Cal Poly Pomona and uh, Paul Story, who was the uh, individual in, in the role that I'm in now, uh, was, was a friend. I met him at NACUS and we were talking and, and I asked the question like, hey, what do you think it would, would take for me to do? you know, be a part of your organization or to someday be in your shoes. And we talked uh, quite a bit and um, I decided that I needed to get in the system, the Cal State University system. And so I took a job, which was really a horizontal move. I was a director of auxiliary. I ran that auxiliary at a little community college and I moved to a place where I wasn't running the auxiliary, still as a director level, um, to get that CSU side experience. And uh, that was Long Beach State, was there for five years, absolutely loved that as well, and was extremely fortunate and blessed to land in the role I am in today. There's no way I could have got it. I'm confident if I didn't go to Long Beach. Um, you know, my career path, as I suggested before, is very Southern California focused. Um, but I feel like I'm home. I grew up within 10 miles of, of Pomona for my entire life. Um, it's, uh, it's my community. It's a community I'm privileged to serve. And uh, not where I thought it would be in high school, not where I thought I'd be in college, but absolutely where I'm very proud to be. I love that. I also know no one here is actually from Long Beach because no one yelled beach when you said that, right? I know. Um, it's pretty sad. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what was it like for you to be, when did, did you consciously make a decision that you weren't going to move for a job or did that just happen naturally? Like how did you, what came first? Well, I, I talked to the boss, so I was with my wife, and uh, you know we both have our roots tremendous in Southern California. My my brother, both sister in laws are very close. My sister is a couple hours away. Um, family, you know, parents, grandparents, all somewhat nearby, and so 
as much as there's an adventure side of me, I love to travel. Didn't travel at all when I was young, but now it's an absolute passion. But then I get to come back home and, you know, it's Southern California is home for me. So it was a discussion, but a brief discussion. <laughs> and, um, you know, later in, in my career, there was an opportunity to move up north to, to Stanford. And, uh, you know, it was I was at Chafee and that's where I knew I needed university experience if I ever wanted the job at Pomona and I, I did get an opportunity at, at Stanford and I got that job offer first and I remember telling my daughter who at the time I think was maybe 10 or 11 and I said hey you know Lauren I, I got that job at, at Stanford and she said congratulations daddy as a tear rolled down her eye and I'm like oh I gotta get this job at Long Beach and uh, <laughs> fortunately a few days later Long Beach made me an offer I was very thankful to everyone um, at uh, it was Follett um, and very thankful for the opportunity at Stanford they were awesome but uh, Long Beach was calling it worked out and um, so it was a discussion again a thought but not really Really something we heavily entertained. It's I, my roots are there. I, it's, it's where I want to be. Yeah, I love that for you. All right, Mike, tell us your story. Someone has to give him a microphone. Thank you. <laughs> well, um, my story starts in many, many moons ago in Niagara Falls, Ontario. That's where I grew up. Um, oh, and I we went go. to Western <laughs> Niagara beach. Falls. Yeah. Holy smokes! Way to go. <laughs> no um, beach there. Yeah. <laughs> But a lot of water. <laughs> I did my undergrad at uh, Western Ontario, which is University of Western Ontario, which is in London, which is about halfway between Detroit and Toronto, for those that don't know. Um, and I've been in student housing since I was an RA at Western um, in some way, shape or form. I didn't know student affairs could be a career. The idea was that I would do a couple years of student housing there while I finished my undergrad. Once I figured out how to be a student, um, my first two years of undergrad are kind of embarrassing if you look at the marks. I am the poster child for uh, involvement on, in campus life, helping your studies get organized and do better, um, and getting involved in the campus, and having that having that happen, um, and improve your grades and improve your leadership skills and everything else. Because um, I came very close to failing out both of my first two years, um, but ended up graduating the last year. I was on dean's list. Um, and my mom has to call me doctor, so, no. so eventually that came around. Um, but if you looked at my first two years, you would never think I'd be doing anything other than flipping burgers, which I did for the summers, but didn't want to do for my life. Um, Western led to doing a full-time job at the University of Windsor, where the idea was I would do this for a year or two and then go to teacher's college. I got accepted into teacher's college and everything, and it was all set to go. And then I went to, a, I was there for five days and they gave me a plane ticket to go to San Antonio, Texas to the Akuhawai conference. And then Gary Johnson, who some of you might know, hosted a reception for all the Canadians that were there and all the other internationals. And he said, why don't you come to Western Illinois? We do, we have Canadians in the program every year. Um, they'll let you do research on Canadian schools if you want to. So I went down for that. And then that's, by the end of the year at Windsor, I decided, hey, I think I'd rather do this than work with grade twos and threes. Um, <laughs> And who knew, like the theories of working with university students in grade twos and threes are basically the same, but just in different contexts. <laughs> <That's fair. laughs> There's lots of heads nodding. <laughs> um, so that ended up uh, being where, where my career path went. So I went from Western Illinois to Appalachian State in North Carolina, worked there for a while, went up to Winona State in Minnesota. That's where I did my doctorate at the University of Minnesota. Um, also got to coach high school hockey, which was a blast. Um, 
and then uh, eventually got back to Canada, went to Trent University uh, as director of housing, and then to McGill University in Montreal. And then that's when Scion um, came into my life in some ways. They, they did a project for us in Montreal, and I met them at different conferences. And they were interested in starting an office in Canada um, on a full-time basis. And they asked me, hey, who would be interested in doing this? Who do you think we could tap into? And I gave them a few names, none of which was mine. <laughs> Um, and then a year or so later, um, if any of you are familiar with the student tuition strikes in Quebec that happened um, in the, the mid-teens of the 2000s, um, I was at McGill when those were happening. There were flashbang grenades going off on, in the streets outside my office. Um, there were police in riot gear confronting um, people wearing the, the black balaclavas and professional strikers and protesters and everything else. And it was a nightmare for most of a year. Um, to be dealing with all of that stuff. And the weird thing was it, it impacted McGill almost nothing um, in terms of the actual student tuition strikes because most of McGill, um, McGill has a huge population that's not from Quebec and those were the students impacted. But the, um, the government offices for higher ed were across the street from three of our residences. Um, and my offices. So all of the, the strikes every night and the protests and the like literal warfare and brawls that were all happening outside the office. So it was a bit of a stressful time. Um, so eventually uh, I did end up getting back to Ontario and Scion asked again about Canadian offices and things and I said, well, would I have to live in Toronto? Um, and this is not a slag against Toronto. My parents are from here. My brother and sister both live here, but I didn't want to live in Toronto. Um, because cost of housing was very expensive then and is bananas now. Um, but we made an agreement that I could live in London, Ontario, and so I ended up living back in the, in the city I went to undergrad with, and I've been with Scion now. Probably the biggest thing that drove me to doing that was so much of my job had become working on um, campus politics, um, political structures and pressures and power trips between different organizations and groups on campus. And I was spending far less time working with students, which is the thing I loved from the beginning, um, far less time working on how can we make things better for the students and just focusing on that. And working with Scion has been probably the most amazing part of that is that the things that I always thought I was best at, um, with making things better, fixing things, doing some research, working with students, figuring out what makes them tick and how we can make things better for them has been what most of my job is with Scion. Um, and then I also get to go to conferences and meet old friends and most of the people in the housing business in Canada were people I grew up with, um, you know, between RAs and hall directors and directors. So it's still all of my friends. I still meet all the same people and still go to the same conferences, but just in a different role. And now with Canada in a pretty serious housing crisis, with student housing being at the forefront of a lot of those things, um, I, I get to stay focused on helping to fix things at a, at a much broader scope. So I miss a lot of the things about campus, but the, the finding that getting reconnected with those things I love to do the most um, was the biggest part about going to Scion. And so I still work with students all the time in universities all the time, just in a different role. I love that. I also think, so you said Western Illinois University. Is that true? That is correct. Did they tell you what Macomb, Illinois is like? I visited, I visited <laughs> two right? schools. You know. I visited two schools for, grad, for my graduate interviews. Um, one was the University of Maine. And these were all very much related to Canadians had been through there. And the mm -hmm. professors were connected with Canadian higher ed. One was the University of Maine. Um, I mentioned to you that I was a hockey coach in, at, in Winona. I grew up playing hockey all the time. I also loved downhill skiing. I went to the University of Maine 
and realized there is no way I will do one lick of academic work if I go here. Because mm. it is, Sugarloaf Mountain is down the street. There's three hockey rinks on, between the campus and the town. I would have been just playing intramurals the whole time and probably would have flunked out. Um, I went to Western Illinois, and it's like, wow, I could really focus yeah. on academics here. <laughs> the skiing is not so good. At no, no, not really. No, yeah. And I it think... was pretty wild to go from a place, like growing up in Niagara Falls, uh, like a lot of Canadian cities, I was a good hockey player, but just for my age group alone, let alone the city, I might have been the 20th best player for my age group in the entire city of Niagara Falls. And Niagara Falls is only about 70,000 people at that, that time. I went to Western Illinois, and there was a real possibility that I was the best star. player on campus. <laughs> so uh, the the residence hall I worked in the first year and the second year when I was the house dad for a fraternity house, we won every ball hockey and street hockey tournament at that campus. Um, and that was a great time. All um, right. Well, a legend in Macomb, uh, Illinois. Hey, everyone has to have something. Yeah. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> All right. Ooh, I mean, Macomb. Okay, last but not least, Dreta, tell us your story. Hello again. Um, I believe I kind of have a, a non-traditional route that kind of got me to where I am. Um, I received my associate's degree from an institution called Detroit College of Business, which is now known as Davenport University. And I ended up getting married, getting pregnant. I had twins and I had to go to work. So while I went to work, I went to work at Buick um, uh, and I was a buyer there. And I was in a position that was normally held for, they called them CGITs, which is college grad in training. They had a hiring freeze. I was there as a contract employee. Hiring freeze lasted three years. And during that time, I went back to Detroit College of Business in the evening and got my bachelor's degree. So by the time the hiring freeze was over, I've been sitting here working this job for three years as a contractor, and I'm a college grad now, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking, okay, I, I need this job, and hiring freezes up, and I talk to people, and I apply, and I get told, unfortunately, your degree is not from one of the approved universities mm -hmm. that we hire from. Mm. So even though I've sat there and did the job for three years, I wasn't quite good enough. I don't know. Sometimes this is how little um, discrimination gets built into systems. But, you know, and this was a long time ago. Um, and I think things kind of hit the fan for me when they expected me to then train mm. the real CGIT, college grad in training, um, as she showed up to take my job. No. Couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. Might have been a little thing. They didn't quite call the National Guard. I invited them to. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I ended up unemployed for a little bit, and there was a buyer's position that opened up at the University of Michigan. And that's kind of how I got into the realm of higher ed um, in purchasing. Um, and then I went to Ann Arbor, worked there for a couple of years and took purchasing and auxiliary services um, when I went to the community college um, in Oakland, Michigan. And I worked there for 16 years. So I thought that was that was kind of it, that I was going to, um, you know, kind of be there. Nobody stays somewhere for 16 years and then starts to do other things. But 
I guess you actually can. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I thought I wanted to just grow a little more and I wanted to work at a four-year university. And sometimes, as Jared knows, you know, it's it's a strategic move when you have a plan and you want to put together a plan to move from a community college to a four-year university because um, we're kind of seen a little differently. Oh, you don't deal with residential and oh, you don't really sell meal plans because all your students are commuters and, you know, parking is free and you've got tax dollars and all this stuff. Um, so I ended up having to make a very important decision in my life. And I did something that I wouldn't recommend anyone do. <laughs> I left Michigan and I moved to Ohio. Oh, no. Oh, man, that's bad. <laughs> <laughs> to make that jump from a community college to um, a university, and I ended up at Wright State University. Um, two years in Ohio was about all I could handle. It was probably more than I could handle. <laughs> and I went running back home to Michigan and um, ended up northern area in Big Rapids there for six years. Um, thought I was just going to kind of ride the wave out there. Um, and a recruiter came knocking on my door and you know, I've just kind of moved on. One of the things, you know, kind of uh, contrary to what Jarrett says is I don't have a problem just kind of getting up moving because my connections are, you know, FaceTime and, you know, I still cook with my grandkids on Zoom and, you know, things like that. Um, it does take a leap of faith, but, you know, you kind of align it where it needs to be. Um, and it just, you know, helps you to know that you can kind of be free and and make those movements that are ready for you or that you're ready for at the time that you're ready for them. So that was my journey. Yeah. To listeners in Ohio, we love you. <laughs> It's just that if you grow up in Michigan, that's a tough move, as, as I did. So I want to ask a question. You know, each of you have had um, pe people that have been influential in your career moves. You've, you've mentioned some of them, uh, a person who took a chance on you when you didn't have the traditional background, for example, or somebody who said, move to Macomb, you'll be a hockey legend, um, right? So could, could you talk a little bit about... Uh, people that have influenced you in that way where it was unusual and and how, if it did, how that has influenced your way of working with staff or students or colleagues. You know, the way others have seen something in you, what has that done for you and how you work with other people in your careers? I have, I think, uh, I think we can learn from people from their good advice and modeling and their bad advice and modeling. So I'm going to try and cover both areas. So on the good side, uh, the the late Earl Davis, he was a, a VP of mine at Chafee. Um, he said, we were having a conversation at one point, and he didn't make this a grand statement, but essentially he said, you know, you anyone, any of us, we may not be the smartest in the room. We may not be the, the most qualified or, you know, the most experienced. We may not have that specific skill set or something, but what we can always control is the integrity that we bring to any situation, the way we treat people around us and the, um, there's, what's the third one? No, our work ethic. So, um, and how much effort we put in. And he said, if you do those three things, he, 
it'll prove successful for you. And it has. And those are the three things that I always carry with me. If, I, if I'm treating people well, if I'm working my butt off, and if I'm doing it with integrity, that'll hopefully help me get to, to where I want to be. So I, I love that one. Uh, another piece of advice that did not make any sense to me at the time, but does now, is I had a boss, uh, Sid Pinedo, who told me, um, I love all the things you're doing and all the innovation you're bringing, but you need to slow down to speed up. And I said, what does that mean? How do you slow down to speed up? Um, but uh, really what now rings true is if we're trying to do too much, if we're not focused on the success of initiatives and prioritizing and ensuring that all the steps are there, then the likelihood is you'll try a lot of things and most of them will fail. And so I found that to be good. Uh, one on the other side that uh, will remain nameless, the oh, individual. I was like, are we going to name the person? This is yeah, yeah, really not good. This time. Um, <laughs> So uh, he considered himself my mentor. Uh, he told me that before I worked for him. And we were over drinks one time. He told me about his philosophy of tear down to build up. And uh, his philosophy is you find something small for each person that works for you, and you tear them down on that small thing so you can mold them into the professional you want them to be. Oh. Then when I worked for him, uh, there was a time, a seemingly harmless uh, situation. I asked his opinion over a text. Um, it, you know, There was an opportunity to go to something. It was kind of last minute. I sent him a text on it, uh, which was common communication for us. And I said, hey, if it's you know a problem and it's late, I'm happy to take vacation um, to, to go do it. it was, I thought it was that important. He calls me in the office. The HR VP's there. He's a VP and, and uh, tells me, don't say anything. You know, I, I just want you to listen and he called me insubordinate and for trying to go around potential denial of the trip because I was going to take vacation and putting and talking him into a corner and he didn't go into a ton of specifics because the VP was the HR VP was there and I think he just wanted to prove a point she left and he tells me oh we can turn the page on this we're going to mold you we're going to get you to the professional that I know you can be and I'm, I will never do that to someone I mean that was a, a lesson for me oh yeah it was yeah. rough do you do you think you learn more have learned more from outstanding supervisors or from those who have been uh, something sub suboptimal? I don't know what the right bad supervisors call it. Subpar? Subpar. Terrible? I mean, yeah, terrible <laughs> bosses. Oh, that's a really tough question. I've never thought of it that way because I do feel like they're... I don't want to cop out and say equal, but that's what I'm leaning towards right now. There are, I, I will go with good. I'm going to be, I'm an optimist. So I think I've learned more from those that I could model behavior after. Um, you know, I was telling Carlos last night, he's in the room somewhere. There's a lot of his traits that I've seen here at NACUS that I've modeled. Um, so I think I've learned a lot more from the people that, uh, that are doing things right, but I don't want to pass on those opportunities yeah. to learn from the people that are doing things wrong too. How about you too? What do you think? Andretta, I think, yeah. I don't know um, that I would say I've actually had like a role model or a mentor. Um, it would have been nice, um, but I, I have always felt like when I wanted something or needed to go in a direction, it was, it was on me to make it happen. Um, so, you know, we can be successful with that support without it. But I think it's important right now, and I'm, I don't know for anybody that was at the Women in Leadership Summit um, in Paso Robles uh, a couple of months ago, um, 
each one teach one, you know, even if I didn't have someone to mentor or role model to kind of help me through my path, um, I definitely have made it um, a goal of mine to make sure that I provide that for someone. And, you know, whether they need it, you know, I have offered my, you know, my um, ear for many people and I want to be there and, and take people along. Um, as far as learning from our previous um, bosses, I think my biggest takeaways from a number of folks that I've worked for is the type of manager that I do not want to be. Um, you know, there's, um, you know, clearly I'm a black female. Well, maybe everyone on the podcast may not see that, but those in this room see <laughs> that, <Fair point. laughs> that I am a black female. And as such, um, there, everyone is not comfortable communicating um, with someone that looks like me versus someone that looks like someone else in the room or on the panel. And a lot of what I have received or taken from leaders um, as I've gone through my journey is an avoidance of conflict. I don't know. Um, they won't address issues. They won't deal with issues, whether they're brought to, to someone's attention or not. Um, and sometimes they let them, you know, kind Fester. of... Fester to the point where it's not healthy for anyone involved. And I kind of operate differently. And I actually have like a little um, conversation with my direct reports with the expectation that we find a way to healthily, healthily, is that a word? Helpfully? Hopefully. We'll use it. Yeah. I'm good with it. <laughs> Deal. Yeah. You know, in a health. Oh, healthy. healthy. You're saying healthy, yes, like I'm a healthful way. Health, yeah. Healthfully. Yeah. Um, deal with conflict and to talk through to our team and our team of managers um, that there is a healthy way to deal with conflict. It doesn't have to be avoided. It's not to be avoided. You'll never get to the other side of it if you don't address it. Doesn't mean you have to be mean and nasty about it. Um, but Lack of the ability to deal with conflict actually creates a horrible work environment. That's right. And I have been in a few of those work environments, and I never want that to be a work environment that I lead. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would, um, you know, if I, if I care about you, I, I would contend if I care about you, the most dishonest thing I can do is not share with you how I'm feeling about our relationship and what's not working. That's correct. Yeah. 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 Very good. Yeah. All right. We have a pause for that. That was a, that was a lot. Thank you for sharing all that. So, what is an issue that you're currently facing that you never thought you'd have to face? So, uh, I shouldn't have been surprised, or I shouldn't be surprised by by this, and I've seen it many times now. But it's something that every time surprises me a little, and especially <laughs> given like U.S. politics, I shouldn't be surprised about it. But um, how? seemingly intelligent people struggle so much to see beyond how it affects them. 
Mm. And that um, continues to be something that uh, is difficult for me. I mean, very intelligent people that just struggle. And um, on in um, campuses and my organization, it, it can be, uh, I saw it a lot during the pandemic. You know, there were most, as I'm sure many of you, most of my organization was working the whole time. Like we couldn't go remote. You can't, how do you serve food remotely? How do you house students remotely? You know, so most of my organization was in um, with my support staff. So I have my own HR, financial services, uh, marketing, uh, the real estate group, stuff like that. Uh, there was a few folks, again, really intelligent, that were quite upset when they got brought back. Like, we don't need to be back. Even though it was, uh, you know, they still have, everybody has the opportunity for some remote time. So I don't want to pretend like that is. But because they, even though for some of them, their productivity wasn't where it should be, they would go out of the way to make a case that remote was better for them. And, and that it was being somehow unfair, even though the vast majority of my group was about was out or already on campus. Now, another one is even with leaders in my organization, if there's an initiative. So I um, encourage uh, debate among my group, respectful dissent is what I call it. Um, my CFO's in the room, she can vouch or she can deny if she wants. She's, <laughs> she's, she's got her own free will. Um, but we, uh, we do debate topics and um, I, I want everybody to bring their perspective to the table, but what sometimes happens is if someone uh, has what is a great idea for their area and comes to the table and finds out it's gonna benefit them, but it's gonna be detrimental for three or four other areas, and in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't make sense for organization, they sometimes still can't understand that. And they can't see beyond how it affects their particular department and feel somewhat stifled um, that they can't move forward. Not that we might aren't still going to explore their options. If things change, we'll come back to it. Um, but uh, there's so part of what I'm trying to do with my organization, with my peers on campus and, el and elsewhere is say, OK, we we got to understand there's no. There's very, very few decisions that are win, 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 win. There's most decisions have an impact somewhere or has some level of risk. And if we're going to be an organization and an institution that's innovative, that is embracing continuous improvement, we have to be able to move forward on things with a cost benefit analysis. And there's always a cost. And that may hit one area more than the other, but we're going to move forward if there's an overall benefit. And then on the next one, hopefully we're gonna find one that benefits your area more than, than that first one. So it's all about balance, but that, that always amazes me. Cause I'm like, you're so smart, like, can't you see it? And so that, that's a struggle at times. And I'm sure I've been guilty of it, by the way. I don't wanna pretend like I haven't been. I, and I, my team has been really good and I, I encourage it. It's difficult conversation sometimes, but I encourage them to, to call me out if I'm not seeing the big picture. And they have. So, so let me riff on that just a minute. Let me ask all of you. So if when you're hiring or you're looking for colleagues, you're, you're making decisions about who you want to lead in your organizations, intelligence certainly matters. But what are the other characteristics? What are the things you're looking for uh, beyond intelligence to, to sort of riff on where you were, Jared? Um, what are you looking for in people that would suggest to you these are going to be good leaders making good decisions? So for me, I, I'm looking for that 
that positive attitude, the uh, flexibility, the um, just someone that's that's agile that that has real examples in their career that that they can talk about that shows where they've they've responded in a productive manner to adversity. Uh, I uh, and hint for anybody that I ever interview, you know, I'm looking for real examples. I don't want to just hear your theory about what you think you should do or what you would do in a situation, you got to tell me what you did do mm. and why you did it and what you learned from it. Um, I, uh, Joanne, my CFO can tell you this too. I asked her a question that I know she hated and it was about, tell me about a decision uh, or tell me about something in your career that you regret and what you do differently in the future. And that's a tough question, but I'm looking for real answers. Mm. I, we all make mistakes. I make my fair share for sure. And what I'm interested in is the type of person that can acknowledge that and learn from that and and improve from that oh, yeah best learning comes from those big mistakes right yeah about, my favorite interview question is if you were going to be a box of cereal what box of I cereal would you question. be and why <laughs> use it i'm telling you my answer is grape nuts <laughs> Some of the things FYI. that I would be. Or what's your most... spirit animal? Oh, spirit animal can get a little scary what people say when you talk about animals. So cereal seems to be like a little more neutral. <laughs> FYI from experience. <laughs> All the data people up here are just dying that I like going off. Snap, crackle, and pop. <laughs> Mike. What, one of the biggest things that I'm always looking for um, in terms of hiring and building a team, and this was when I was at university as well as now that I'm in consulting, is getting some real examples from people. Um, you know, when they're very young, sometimes you have to stick with what their ideas are. But as much as you can, getting examples of times where um, they've told people that the other person was wrong and also how they deal with ambiguity. Um, there are a number of times where in our line of work, we have to tell people that the assumptions they've been basing a lot of decisions on are incorrect. And we have to show them why and place it for them in, in the context of all the different things we're looking at. But sometimes we have to tell people they're wrong. Um, I've had a lot of discussions in the last three, four months um, especially in the last uh, maybe two, where I've had to be having a lot of discussions with city government, provincial government, and federal government, um, trying to help them understand that we're dealing with a much different reality to try to solve the problem they're talking about. And in some cases, the problem they're talking about isn't the problem. The problem they're talking about is something that's different than that. Um, and also looking at examples that are out there of ways that people have already addressed it and had success with it, and wheels don't need to be reinvented. Um, I know there's a bunch of folks from British Columbia sitting at a table back there. I have told more people outside of the province of British Columbia about British Columbia's student housing strategy, and it is mind-boggling how much um, it's it can be difficult to connect to people how something that has been obviously successful and generally worked um, could help solve a number of problems across the country when we're dealing with such a big crisis and how to get it through. And that is, it's such a delicate balance when you're talking to people like, you know, senior VPs at universities, boards, and um, deputy ministers and ministers to help them. It's less about telling them that they're wrong and more about helping them see that the thing they're looking at isn't the actual problem. Um, and seeing where the different dynamics are and how it can be solved. And deal the same thing with investors who are trying to build things that I know won't fill and they will probably go broke, um, but helping them see it. So it sounds like you're both talking about familiarity with the profession, the ability to apply lessons learned, the, the synthesis of things happening out there and the reflection, self-awareness 
uh, on uh, how you um, self-awareness about one's own mistakes and what they've learned from those those things. Anything to add to that, Jaretta? There better be a long list. <laughs> well, you know, here again, I'm just not that deep. I like, <laughs> I like to feel a person's energy. I want to be able to sit down and have a conversation with them. I want to ask questions and, and feel their level of innovation and thinking outside the box. Um, a lot of that other stuff can be trained, uh -huh. but it, it, you can come to me and know all of this stuff, but if I can't if, if we don't have that synergy like an and I can't IQ get you of, excited yeah. about the next big project, yeah. then, you know, so I just address things a little differently, yeah, I guess. Okay. Well, it was one of the questions when we were prepping for this podcast. So usually Lauren and I would do wing it. We have questions, but in prepping for an actual <laughs> session with a large group of people, one of the conversations that came up was, data and logic or emotion and intuition <laughs> and how they like either complement or work against and how that goes. And we have Jared's name written next to it. So um, part of me, I, I'm interested, Jared, and we've known each other for, we've decided what, 15 years maybe? Sounds about right. Let's yeah. go with that. Yeah, yeah. And I think our personalities, um, our values are aligned, but our personalities and how we get stuff done maybe is a little different. I would agree. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So talk to me in, in a leadership role when you uh, are a very um, seemingly data-driven type of person and exactly what Jared is describing, kind of this intuition. How, do, how does that work from a leadership perspective? Sure. And before I jump into that, I will say one more uh, on the hiring part with students and kind of entry level to get promoted. One of the traits I look for, and I'm telling a lot of my secrets here, I'm pretty open, by the way, if you haven't got that by now, uh, people that, that move with a purpose. Um, I found someone told me that at some point uh, Brad and Andy and I were talking about that over uh, coffee a little bit ago. Um, but people that move with the purpose, they're going somewhere. And that's how it was described to me. And I, I found that to be true. Mm -hmm. um, all right. So going back to the other question. So I personally feel and by the way, everything I'm saying, my opinion, um, you know, I'm happy to debate <laughs> it. But my opinion, um, I think the yeah. the best decisions are made when it is based on logic and, and data that we know we get a sense, put our ear to the ground, understand what people need and what they want. But I think we can make a mistake kind of back to my blinders comment earlier. If we feel like once that plan is made, that it is set in stone because it's based on data and that we're only headed in one direction. I think we, we have to be amenable. We have to be flexible, agile to the environment around us. Um, we have to see how it's emotionally impacting ourselves and others. We have to be uh, ready for new data to come in and and adjust to that situation. I think we fail. I mean, if we just keep going in one direction, just because we all work so hard, let's just stay with it. I, I, I like the grit in that, but we fail if we miss what's going on around us in the environment. Um, well, we have a few minutes left um, in this session, 15 to be exact. Thank you very much. Um, so any questions from the audience? Anyone want to ask something? We have more. We can keep going. But anyone? Jeremy. Oh, here comes the microphone. Will you um, say who you are and what university you're from? Yeah. 
Um, good afternoon, Jeremy Shank, Northwestern University. So, um, so I'm a big Ted Lasso fan, mm. and uh, just been rewatching season three. So I'm stealing this question from a quote in that movie, in that series. But uh, the question is. As uh, professionals in higher ed, oftentimes, and I'll, I'll apologize in advance for the language, oftentimes we have to deal with a lot of shit. But shit makes people and things grow. What is something that you had to deal with that now looking back you can say, wow, I grew as a professional because of that? I got one. All right, so uh, I feel like I'm talking too much, I'm sorry. Uh, the uh, I had an individual uh, two campuses ago, community colleges, who worked for me, who drove me crazy. Um, drove me crazy because uh, she, you know, we had these great ideas, we're moving forward, and she was one that would say, wait, there, you gotta think about this. And it's almost felt constant, but what, and so I felt like she was just giving me a hard time. Like she didn't, I, I don't know, it's my own, my own head trash and my own problem there. But what I learned from that situation, what I learned from her is having people at the table that think differently, that are going to challenge your ideas, make them better. So the programs where she did that were more successful every time. Again, drove me crazy, but <laughs> every time. And uh, because a lot of the other people around me, we would build this idea we thought too much alike and we'd, we'd cover some areas and come with something we thought was great. And then she'd hurl the crap at us, and, but it made us better. And so now I look when building a team, so maturity in my career, that don't just think like me. People that are going to challenge me, people that are going to make the organization better, knowing that at the time it's not going to necessarily feel the best to hear that my, my idea or this person's idea is not gold. But it can get there. We can polish that stone, and it's a diamond if we put enough work into it. I love that. Uh, I have too many examples of times where that <laughs> stuff has happened. Um, probably one of the best ones that taught me a lot, and luckily it happened very early in my career where there was a lot of forgiveness for making mistakes, um, was at Western Illinois. And uh, myself and a colleague had done something that we thought was right. Um, we were doing everything with best intentions in terms of following up and dealing with the situation in the moment and everything else. And we thought it was a simple situation. Um, but there were a couple of protocols that we skipped because we thought we had it under control, you know, cause we were cool grad students and we knew what we were doing and they put us in the biggest building. So we, we knew what was going on. Um, and by the time the morning came around, uh, it became clear that a couple of protocols that we'd skipped had had the potential of making something really, making a real mess um, in terms of dealing with the ramifications of what that student behavior was. And luckily it didn't end up causing that, um, but that was probably the first time um, someone that wasn't a coach getting upset with me got upset with me over doing something. They did it in a fairly straightforward way, which was good. I, frankly, I was glad based on my background that they didn't beat around the bush. Um, they were very direct and very straightforward. Um, Frank, and then Gary came in the room, and he was even more direct and straightforward. If any of you know Gary, that was he was very direct about what we had done and what not to do and things like that. And that taught me a lot. And it's frankly never meant that I'm a slave to protocol, um, but it's made me very aware of always making sure that even if not every single I can be dotted and T can be crossed, that at least you're 
in consideration of them and know which ones you might have to go back and double check on or you're making a conscious decision to move forward and thinking about it um, even if you don't have time in the moment to do it right then but the value of protocols and processes was drilled into my head from from that particular one Tretta, did you think of one just just quickly just quickly, um, in regards to um, the question, I think one of the things coming in um, uh, into a position where there was a long-term um, predecessor, just dealing with um, my putting forth uh, what I expect from operations, from staff, from my management team versus what had been expected from the previous leader. For those that worked for you know that leader for a couple of years, not a big deal, but there were folks that had worked for that previous leader the same 30 or 40 years. And so, you know, that, um, it kind of forces me to be more cognizant um, of where they're coming from and make sure I'm not being unreasonable or that I help develop a path to get to that expectation and not just, you know, slam the, the fist down and say, no, today it's this, sorry. Um, so that has um, one of the things that I'm dealing with a lot right now as far as, you know, the stuff that shows up in our institutions. Yeah. Any other questions anyone wants to ask? Good question, Mother. Yeah. Very good question. Okay, what do you all like to do for fun? You all look to me like I'm crazy. <laughs> Didn't I played. I, I feel like that was like, wait, fun? Hockey. What's fun? Up I don't until, do fun. <laughs> up until last uh, November, I played in an under 25 ball hockey league um, with a lot of people. He's not oh, under 25. Okay, junior guys. <laughs> and it is a long time since I have seen the age okay, of 25. <laughs> uh, but I did end up with a broken wrist. And so I have since retired from the under 25 league. And I'm now in an under 35 league. <laughs> They asked for ID, huh? They might call that a humble brag. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what I do for fun is is travel. I mean, I love it. I'm I'm a nerd. I mean, I got here early enough that I got to walk up to University of Toronto and walk around campus and soak it all up. I, I think I did 20,000 steps walking around the city. Um, I, I, I mentioned before, it's not something I did growing up. We didn't have the resources to do it. So I have such a tremendous passion for it now. Um, every opportunity I get to see new things, try new foods, meet new people, uh, experience new things, I just absolutely love and outside of that escape rooms i love escape rooms those are a lot of fun it's challenging it gets my mind off because you have to think about what you're doing so my the other worries of the world go off my mind and so i love that as well Dreta, my favorite pastime is watching food network oh, oh. what's your favorite show uh anything on food network <laughs> 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 um, I, I like it. to cook. Okay. Um, and I've kind of get my grandkids into it. So we talk about recipes and things. What, what's and, the go-to dish? Uh, shrimp quesadillas. Mm. Mm. Spicier so. the better. <laughs> oh, yeah, we've learned spicy doesn't really exist in Canada. Canadians, I don't feel like you like spicy. Nope. Uh -oh. Denied we haven't been to the right place. You are going to the wrong places. Okay, good. 
<laughs> if you want some, some tips, I can work on those All right. for you. Yeah, I would like that list. Uh, my brother and sister both live in Toronto. I know lots of friends in Toronto. So yeah, within f within four blocks, I can have your mouth burning. <laughs> Perfect. Kelsey, you can talk about Macomb, but don't talk about Canada. Yeah, I know. I was like, okay. Watch it, lady. Yeah. I, I'm on notice. Got it. <laughs> Well, we are uh, at time and want to say thank you to all of you who came today to listen to these tremendous colleagues and to each of you for, for being with us and for your service to uh, higher education and, and to NACUS. We've learned a lot today. We've learned uh, about the importance of balancing data with intuition. We've learned that uh, uh, addressing conflict is a form of caring and it's honest. We've talked a lot about we can learn as much from bad bosses maybe as we can from good bosses, how important it is to move with purpose, and maybe even that uh, we've met the legend of Macomb, uh, Illinois here in hockey. So um, we're super grateful to you for being willing to be on this podcast and for all of your service to higher education, and we're inspired and uh, humbled by what you're, what you're doing. So thank you very much. Thank you to all of you. Campus Confidential is presented by Compass Group, produced by Corey Insko, with your hosts, Kelsey Harmon-Finn and Lauren Rollman.